18 verses 9 uh, to 14. I have uh, approached this with some trepidation this week. It's uh, because it's such uh, a dear, dear uh, passage to me uh, in the Bible. Uh, as with most Presbyterian ministers, I'm very taken with Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. Uh, not only Presbyterians, but Christians of every stripe uh, view that letter with awe and affection. Uh, Luther said it was actually, in fact, the clearest gospel uh, of them all. And uh, you might remember the 17th, <clears throat> excuse me, the 17th verse of the first chapter uh, where Paul says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And, uh, and that is a little bit of a summation of the letter. Paul spends the rest of the letter fairly unpacking what he means right there uh, in that. And I'll say it again. Uh, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous uh, will live by faith. Well, I was uh, reading Romans this week. My daily Bible readings got me in Romans. And I hit, I think it was chapter 10. And it was amazing to me the way the first half of chapter 10 sounded exactly like what Jesus is doing in this parable. And again, highlighting the brilliance of Jesus, uh, but also uh, highlighting, I think, the coalescence of what Jesus taught and of what the Apostle Paul unpacked and displayed uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, so I don't want to preach that passage right now. I'm tempted to. Uh, but I do want to say that it's important that you understand that the gospel is about the righteousness of God. Uh, the gospel has to do with righteousness, with the necessity of it, with where it's to be found. Uh, it is not just, the gospel is not just about where sins can be forgiven. And I think a lot of you in the room understand that. I, I think that the theological construct of double imputation is near and dear to many of the saints at Carriage Lane. Uh, but I'll reiterate that to say that the gospel is not simply about where sins can be forgiven, it's about where righteousness is to be found. And the gospel has to do with righteousness. So again, this is a well-known parable. It can lose its punch uh, for being familiar. Uh, as with Romans, it has to do with how one is righteous, how one obtains righteousness. In the first verse, verse nine, uh, it, sa it says he told this parable, Jesus told this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So the category of righteousness is introduced and it concludes uh, with Jesus saying, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified uh, rather than the other. Now the word justification, you might remember, means declared righteous. Uh, in the Greek, the root is the same, the root of righteousness and the root of justification. It's a lot easier to read in the Greek and to see the connection. We lose it a little bit in English, but this passage begins with righteousness, those who think they're righteous, and it ends with righteousness. This man goes home righteous, if I can use an awkward way of saying it. He goes home having been declared uh, righteous. Now. Before I read the passage, I, I do want us to kind of uh, think about what it is that is being uh, talked about in, the term, in terms of righteousness. We often think of righteousness 
simply in terms of um, moral excellence, uh, that to be righteous is to be morally upright, uh, and to obtain righteousness is to obtain uh, some, some kind of moral stature. Uh, but I think it's more than that, and I think it's helpful for us to think of it as more than that. Uh, to, be, it's, to be righteous is to be just. Uh, it's to be approved. It's to be accepted. It's to be secure. Uh, everybody wants to be justified. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to mention this, but you'll forgive me. Um, but, you know, one of the TV shows that I enjoyed several years ago was called Justified. Now, it was a little bit of a crazy show, and it had certain elements of it that, you know, you wouldn't want to recommend from the pulpit. Uh, but w but the, the drumbeat of the whole thing was this, this federal marshal who kept uh, defending himself uh, for having shot a guy earlier in the first show, and he kept sa keep saying all the way through it, it was justified, it was justified. I am just, I was righteous, I did the right thing. He wants to be approved, he wants to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted and approved. Everybody wants to be seen as legit, as attractive, as acceptable. And this underlies what's going on with the word righteousness in the Bible. Uh, we want to be seen as righteous, we want to be seen as approved. It's why we get dressed up, it's why we worry about what other people think, it's why we compare ourselves to others, it's why we're defensive, why we rationalize, why we play the victim, why we feel the need to explain ourselves, because we hunger for justification. We hunger for righteousness. And we find little places where we can locate our righteousness, little places where we have accomplished something, little places that we're good at. Um, T was up in North Carolina and uh, hung out with a friend who had also lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we lived for many years. And this friend made the comment that she had completely imbibed uh, one of the little uh, trendy corners of righteousness in Cambridge, and that is composting. Uh, if you can imagine this, that uh, in Cambridge, uh, not only does the trash guy come around and pick up your trash once a week, and the recycling guy come and do the same thing, but, but right in line, there's somebody that will pick up your little composting bag that you have uh, righteously uh, been keeping all week long. Nobody has a yard, so you can't do real composting. You just dump your banana peels into this bag and you give it to somebody. And uh, you know, it's a little badge of honor. Yeah, I, I'm one of the composters. Um, and we've all got these little places where we boast, these little places where we just kind of uh, hook ourselves and anchor ourselves and say, this is the place where um, I find my conscience at rest. And of course, that takes a devious turn, uh, and it takes the most devious turn with this Pharisee here, uh, because it leads, that corner of righteousness leads to uh, comparison with other people, uh, and then it leads automatically, or it seems inexorably, to the disdain of other people. And that's the telltale sign that we want to be on the lookout for. So um, that all being said by way of introduction, uh, let me read the passage. Uh, pay close attention. This is the word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God, and we believe that it's true. Uh, so, the context for this is the worship uh, in the temple. It took place daily. In fact, it took place twice a day. Uh, sacrifices were offered, sacrifices, blood sacrifices for sin, and that's an important consideration. Both men go up to the temple. It's at an elevated place uh, geographically, and both go back down. Both stand away from the crowd, one, because he disdains the crowd, imagining himself to be spiritually superior, uh, and the other because he imagines himself unworthy. So let's take a look at these two characters. Uh, first, uh, the Pharisee. And the first thing I want to do, uh, if I can, is to rehabilitate uh, the reputation of the Pharisee. Uh, I know that's hard to do. Uh, we know too much from reading the New Testament that the Pharisees are the bad guys. Uh, we imagine them to be nasty, unpleasant, not the right kind of people. Uh, we imagine that we would not like to have them living in our neighborhood. Uh, but in fact, the Pharisees were known for their piety. Uh, they were known for being upright. Uh, they likely were good neighbors uh, because the law commanded them to do so. Uh, they respected the law. They did not break the speed limit or run stop signs. They kept their lawns and their houses in good shape. Uh, they're the kind of people that would have brought you a meal when you got sick. And overall, they were good citizens and reputable members of the community. It's important to remember that, not to paint them too darkly. They were a lot like us. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis has a commentary on Luke, and he titles this chapter, the chapter on this passage, The Presbyterian and the Publican. Uh, and I think that he's right. Uh, when he draws that connection to say uh, that, that this Pharisee is a lot like us. Now that being said, there are some big problems uh, with this Pharisee. Uh, first, let's just notice that his prayer is deficient. Um, prayers can be deficient. I think it's important to note that. I think that you should assess the way that you pray and make sure that the way that you pray is a way that honors God, is a way that is not um, focused in some other way entirely. Uh, one of the reasons that I like to use that devotional and follow it in our prayer meeting is because language is given us that's hundreds of years old about how to pray, and I want to be informed by that rather than being informed by, you know, my close circle of friends with whom I pray. Uh, prayer can be deficient, and this guy's prayer is uh, enormously deficient. Uh, even though he thanks God, you know, it starts well, God, I thank you, um, he doesn't then recall anything God has done for which he is thankful. 
He doesn't say, God, I am thankful that you have done this, that, or the other. Uh, the general thanksgiving in the Book of Common Prayer uh, reads this way. Maybe you've heard it. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for your inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Now that's a proper thanksgiving. God is being honored for what he has done, for what he's accomplished, for the, the discreet components of his benevolence uh, towards us uh, who have put our trust in him. Uh, the Pharisee doesn't do that at all. He runs right to boasting. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And here's his boast. Uh, I am not an extortioner, not unjust, not an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. Now, it's ordinarily admirable not to be an extortioner. It's admirable not to be unjust or adulterous. That's a good thing. All of those indicate a fealty to the law. That he's paying attention to what God has said. Uh, but in this case, what is ordinarily admirable is stained, it's polluted, it's corrupted. Uh, because he uses it, and you might say it's, he solely uses it to show contempt for the tax collector. And that's really a critical point in this passage, is this contempt. Uh, that's in the first verse. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The NIV translates, look down on others. Uh, I think another translation says, treated others with disdain. And this is where we, you know, we want to take a step back and, and may, maybe go back a half hour in our worship service and say, let's contemplate this as we get ready to confess sin. And I'll put to you the hard question. Um, whom do you disdain? Whom do you hold in contempt? And that's a very hard question. And I think it exists broadly, societally. You may hold in contempt those of, not of your political persuasion. Uh, that's the norm in our society. You would be just like everyone else if you did that. Uh, for those of us who are professional in a religious capacity, it's very easy and very tempting to hold in contempt uh, those not in our theological camp. Uh, but it gets even deeper and more personal than that. Uh, you can hold in contempt those outside the church. You can hold in contempt those in other churches. You can hold in contempt some inside the church. And this is a hard thing. Again, I mean, I've, I've talked to people about um, life here in Carriage Lane. You know that I'm temporary, and, uh, and T and I have enjoyed, uh, without reservation, our time here and the hospitality that we've received and the warmth and the, the blessing of the church. Um, and, and, but I've noticed that there is, uh, on the one hand, great gratitude for all that God has done. And that's a good thing to say that God has uniquely blessed the church, uniquely blessed Carriage Lane with some pretty amazing 
uh, things that have taken place. Uh, in fact, I, I still stand in awe and was reflecting yesterday on the way that God has uh, heard the prayers of many of the people in the church. And I'm so thankful every week that I get a couple of reminders a week on things that need to be prayed for. And, uh, and I do pray for them, but I'm, I'm really kind of amazed at the way God tends to hear those prayers. I think the funniest thing was the man who uh, went in for his open heart surgery. I don't even know who he is, uh, but he was over in Mississippi. And when they got ready to cut on him, they said, you know, you don't really need the surgery. And his daughter apparently said to him, uh, people have been praying a little bit too much for you. And uh, he got healed ahead of time. Um, but in many other ways, historically and otherwise, there is much to be thankful for. Uh, but there is also the tendency then uh, to have that shift into, because we're a lot like the Pharisee, uh, viewing with contempt those outside, those who have not met the measure, you know, those who, who have not arisen to the level of fidelity and faithfulness. And we got to be very careful about that. I have to examine my own heart routinely. Uh, it's, it's so simple for me to hold in contempt uh, those with whom I don't agree in the specifics of my theological posture. And being a pastor, uh, that's pretty specific and pretty narrow. Uh, so that's what this guy does. Uh, he compares himself uh, to the tax collector, which is fatal. Uh, a fallacy is exposed when he boasts of his fasting and his tithing, because what he's doing is going beyond what the law says. You know, the, the, the law described one particular fast that all Israel had to participate in, and that was during the Passover. One specific fast. But those who, were, who wanted to be over the top said, no, we're going to fast more than that. And the elite among the fasters, the Pharisees, fasted twice a week. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think is what it was. I can't remember. Um, but they, they had this sense of, we're, you know, we're going to show you uh, who's really righteous. In the same way, the tithe was required uh, for certain crops. Um, but he says, I tithe on everything. In a sense, he says to God, I'm going to go you one better. You want this, I'm going to go a little bit farther. And, and this, is a, this, is a, this is a hard thing to kind of reckon with. You know, there's two ways that you can rebel against the Lord. Uh, one of those ways is to disregard the law. Uh, but another way, and I would suggest maybe even more heinous, is to use the law to build your own righteousness. Those are both ways of rebelling against the Lord. On the one hand, disregarding the law and just saying, I'm not going to listen to the law, I'm not going to obey the law, I'm going to go my own way. That's one way to rebel. But another way to rebel is to take that law and seize it as your own and to use it as the fulcrum against which you will hold God in your own judgment. Now, this is hard stuff to imagine. And Pharisees can't imagine at all that that's taking place. They go, what, what, me? No, that's not possible. But the same dynamic takes place throughout Luke. The clearest example is the and you'll remember this, is the parable of the lost sons. One of the lost sons runs off, squanders his inheritance, 
treats his father with contempt. And it really was a, a horrific thing that he did. Uh, some of the people who read that say it's very surprising uh, that the father did not kill him when he came back. That would have been expected. But the other son, by his own admission, having perfectly obeyed his father, despises his father's grace and mercy. Two ways to rebel. Two ways to uh, uh, hold God in contempt. Two ways to alienate yourself from God. The irony is, and this is a crazy irony, is if you had to choose between the two, you would probably be better off being the one who runs off to the far land and squanders all of his property. And that, that's hard to imagine. You know, and again, you know, for a lot of us, we're saying, well, at least I didn't go off and squander my father's property. But, but think about this. When the, the sinner, when the, the, the prodigal, the one who has run off, comes to his senses, when his life falls apart and he comes to his senses, he knows what he needs to do. He needs to get back to his father. Uh, but what is this righteous son supposed to do as his life is falling apart? As he is angered at the celebration over the son's return? What's he supposed to do? Where can he go? Well, the story doesn't tell us. Except that it does tell us that the Pharisees conspired to have Jesus executed. That was their response. So this Pharisee builds his self-esteem by comparing himself to the tax collector. And it's a sign of his internal instability. To build your righteousness on your own behavior, on your own personality, makes you routinely insecure. So that you have to compare yourself to others and you must, in the end, uh, view others with contempt. You have to set yourself above uh, others and say, well, at least I'm not like that guy. I may have mentioned this before because it was so striking in my experience, uh, but I was doing jail ministry in Winston-Salem many years ago, and, uh, and that jail, that little local jail, existed right in the shadow of the big Wachovia Bank building. I'm old enough to remember Wachovia Bank. What is it now? Is it, is it I don't know which one it is, which one bought it out, but it was the big bank building in Winston-Salem at the time. And I remember doing this Bible study with these uh, men who were incarcerated, you know, and, and they were talking about the way that even with all the bad that they had done, and even with the fact that they'd gotten caught, at least they weren't as bad as those bankers up there in that Wachovia building. And I thought, this is just an amazing thing. Uh, how at every level of society, at every level of spiritual development, you can find some corner wherein you view others with contempt. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. It's very reminiscent, I think, of chapter 7, in which another Pharisee judges another sinner. I wish we had all day to bicycle through Luke. But that's one of the most poignant pictures in all of the Gospel of Luke. You know, uh, the Pharisee, Simon, that he even has a name, uh, thinking to himself, you know, if the Lord knew this woman and her character, he would have nothing to do with her. 
And yet right in front of his very eye is this simple, unforced, magnificent display of piety. She is very simply, from the heart, without calculation, fulfilling the law, loving the Lord her God with all of her heart, soul, strength, and mind. But he misjudges her, and he holds her in contempt, just as this Pharisee also holds in contempt the tax collector. Well, let's take a look at the tax collector. A couple of things notable about him. Uh, His eyes are lowered. Lowered eyes are a sign of humility. Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Never understood that until we had kids and understood the difference between a frantic, hungry child and a weaned child uh, who could rest. Um, The chest is beaten as a sign uh, that within the chest is the heart uh, that is inclined uh, to be wayward. It's a sign of grief. It is a a little bit arresting that uh, it's usually something that women do, uh, at least culturally, uh, but here the tax collector is doing this, uh, demonstrating remarkable grief Uh, But he's a man who's come to his senses, who is in his right mind, and he cries out for mercy. Now, there's some interesting stuff here from the original language that I want to pay attention to. Uh, He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, The word for merciful there is an unusual word in Greek. Uh, The normal word for merciful, have mercy, is eleison. Maybe some of you know the the Latin phrase, Kyrie eleison, uh, it's in the uh, Roman Mass. It was also in uh, a pop song back in the 90s. Uh, one of those crazy groups sang a song called Kyrie eleison. But eleison is uh, the word that is used for have mercy on me. It's used down in verse 38 in this chapter. And that's the normal uh, use of the word mercy. That's the normal Greek word that is used for someone to ask for um, grace Uh, that is undeserved, that is uh, unexpected. You know, you want mercy uh, rather than judgment, mercy rather than justice. Uh, But this word is not that. Uh, This word is hilaskamai, which only occurs one other time in the New Testament uh, as a verb, uh, and that's in uh, Hebrews 2.11, where it's translated make propitiation. And the word holoskema is the verb, the noun is hilasterion, and that occurs four times notably uh, in the New Testament. All of, in every place, it's translated propitiation. It's translated sacrifice of atonement. So it is significant that this guy is standing outside the temple in which is being offered a blood sacrifice. And he says, have mercy on me. He says, I need that atonement. I need that blood sacrifice. You know, not to belabor the point, but once again, uh, J.I. Packer has a great uh, little section on propitiation in knowing God. If you're interested in tracking that down, I'll give you the page number. Uh, But he describes what propitiation is. And it's kind of what we've already sung about this morning. Uh, Propitiation has to do with covering the sinner, but it also has to do with absorbing the wrath of God. It's a very telling and deep and profound um, 
notion having to do with penal substitutionary atonement. It's, it's a critical uh, notion. It's a notion that's so critical um, that the modern church, I mean, I could call it the liberal church, but a, the modernist trend in the church sought to do away with the word propitiation. If you get an old RSV, uh, you will find not the word propitiation, but the word expiation, which only has to do with the covering of the sinner. Does not have to do with absorbing God's wrath. Uh, because the translators, one in particular, said it's beneath God's dignity to exert wrath. Well, when the ESV folks bought the rights to the RSV, one of the things they quickly did was went back and put in propitiation. Because that's what the Greek word says. That God's wrath is absorbed. God's wrath is extended onto Christ. And the tax collector knows that he needs this. He knows that he needs personally the atonement that's being offered in the temple. And it may be grammatically insignificant, so I don't want to dispute with the ESV translation, but in the Greek, there's a definite article in this verse. Literally, he is saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner. He says, I'm, I am the sinner. I'm the one who is in need of what's being offered or what's being signified uh, in the blood sacrifice inside the temple. I need grace. I need atonement. Building my righteousness on my own deeds, on my own reputation, on my own behavior has been a catastrophic mistake. So that's his posture. And, and I'm very grateful for what Howell said. It was a good reminder to me that this is not the eternal and constant posture uh, of people who are faithful. Uh, you know, someone told me one time that while you need to be repenting always, you should never repent for longer than five minutes. If you repent long, for longer than five minutes, you're showing a lack of faith in God's grace and God's ability to actually forgive you. Uh, so Jesus says, in his comment, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Well, again, if you're reading it carefully in the Greek, he went down to his house righteous, having been made righteous, having been declared righteous. That's the way you get righteousness. Do you get righteousness out of your own behavior, out of your own performance? Is that where righteousness is to be gotten? Well, again, I mean, such a thing is ultimately disastrous. It's going to cripple you. It's going to debilitate you psychologically, make you radically unstable, have you running around comparing yourself to other people, holding a lot of people in contempt, all the while you're worrying about what you look like. It propels you into seeking the approval of other people rather than the approval that comes from God. Uh, but this man received righteousness. He received God's righteousness. That's what justified means. He's justified by his faith. I think it's very fair to say that that's exactly what's happened here. Just like the woman in chapter 7 when Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Just like Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Just like all the saints listed in Hebrews chapter 11. He's justified by his faith. He's justified by his entrusting himself to God and God's mercy and God's atonement and God's provision. And so Jesus' conclusion really needs to be underscored. 
He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it's interesting. That's the second time Jesus has said this in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The first time, he said exactly the same thing back in chapter 14 uh, when he was addressing those attending a banquet and encouraging them, instructing them to take the low seat. But it's a prominent theme. It echoes Proverbs 29. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The same idea is picked up in James twice in chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Uh, Peter says pretty much the same thing in the fifth chapter of his first letter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, Friends, this is what faith looks like. Last week, it looked like persistent prayer. Uh, This week, it looks like a clear-headed yearning for grace. Now, that's not all that faith is. Faith is a lot more. There's certainly joy. There are good works. There is fealty to the law. For this tax collector, there will be the fruit of the Spirit. There will be a transformed character that looks more and more like the Beatitudes. But at this critical point, at this critical point in the, in the public worship, he knows where his hope lies. There is going to be in this man who is justified a generosity of spirit that does not disdain others, that does not seek to compare oneself favorably to others, does not seek the approval of others. I think it's Davis that ends up his chapter, his sermon, he says, you know, the delicious irony of this is when the congregation walks out saying, boy, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that Pharisee. But that's what we're, that's what we're prone to do. That's our tendency at every point. And so the, the, the cry needs to be with hands held high and with eyes cast down, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. My years with the Brazilians taught me the, the most potent of Portuguese phrases, tenha misericordia, have mercy, have mercy. This is our posture. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's so much to be gleaned from the passage. Uh, we simply pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit, uh, take Uh, what is necessary and drive it into our hearts plant it deep uh, so that it might bear fruits might bear the fruit of honest relationships it might bear the fruit of uh, the glorious freedom of the children of god that it might bear fruit in effusive worship uh, that it might bear fruit in in testimony uh, to neighbors uh, whom we care for and do not hold in contempt Uh, that it might give us a way Uh, to navigate um, the uh, serious um, divisions and disruptions and, um, yeah, just uh, potential uh, uh, destruction of our society as we know it. 
Father, we need uh, a lot more than a clever path. We need hearts uh, that are informed by the gospel, that give us grace to speak the truth in love, uh, but from a posture uh, that is reflective of our having received grace and mercy in a time of need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.